life is a matter is is one long journey of learning. Uh, and when you think of it uh, that way, uh, then you then see yourself and what you've done in a very, very different light. Hello and welcome everyone to another Mind Matters show. Join me, joining me in the studio today is Harrison Keeley, Adam Daniels, and it is my great pleasure to have with us on the show today, Professor Nick Capaldi, who uh, has taught um, at Queens College. He is a professor emeritus at Loyola University. He is uh, the author of two books on David Hume, uh, The Enlightenment Project in Analytic Conversation, a biography on John Stuart Mill, Liberty and Equality in Political Economy, From Locke versus Rousseau to the Present, and The Anglo-American Conception of the Rule of Law. Welcome to our show, Nick. Thank, Thank you, you for joining for us. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. It's a pleasure. So we had we were actually introduced to Nick by our our previous guest Zbigniew Vinovsky. Um, you both have written articles for the Post Deal magazine, so we'll include a link to whatever your latest article is on there. We'll find it and put a link to it. Okay, um, great. Well, maybe so. He he brought you up in the context of his book of his collection of the the writings of John Stuart Mill. He's got one volume mm -hmm. out, and he's got another volume that should be coming out fairly soon. And he recommended your book to us, your biography of John Stuart Mill. Um, well, first of all, when how old is that book now? When did you publish it? That was published, uh, I think, in 2004, 2004, 2005, roughly that period. I think it's technically 2004, but the book wasn't actually available until 2005. Mm -hmm. What uh, Can you tell us a bit about that book? Um, as Bignyev said, right. it's the only book you need to read on, uh, on John Stuart Mill. <laughs> Oh, no, I'd be happy, happy to share that with you. Um, I remember as a as an undergraduate reading John Stuart Mill's uh, essay on uh, on liberty, um, and it was one of the few books uh, that really moved me. Um, had this experience, I think other people had similar experiences, where you think the author is just addressing you, and it touched me very deeply because up until then I hadn't really thought about the the larger. Uh, the larger issues. I was simply involved in getting an education, trying to uh, learn as much as I as much as I could, um, without having any sense of how important the process of education was. Uh, my, I suppose, like most people, uh, in the beginning, you think of it as well, I'm uh, acquiring skills and information, and that will be useful. To you, and of course, very often it is. What I didn't understand at the time, but Mill sort of started me on this path, is that it can also help transform your character in a way. Uh, it could it could make a difference in the kind of person that you are. Um, I would hope that everybody would have such an experience, though. Unfortunately, that's not always the uh, the uh, the case. To put it uh, another way, what I discovered. In, in reading Mill is that it was all right for me to have a voice, that up until then, I was merely learning what other people had thought or had to say um, and trying to you know, remember it and uh, you know, invoke it, 
et cetera, but that somehow I had a responsibility to invest myself in my opinions and not simply uh, not simply have views or opinions, but ask why I had those opinions. Uh, were they really defensible? How were they connected with other things? That I was res- that at some very deep level, I was ethically responsible for for what I believe or for or for what I as- asserted. Um, and that baby realized I had obligations as, as part of the educational uh, process. So it wasn't just that I get an opportunity to shoot my mouth off or, or have a, uh, a captive audience because I'm giving people grades. Uh, it, uh, it was okay for me to talk even when nobody was listening because it was, it was important in my development of who I was uh, that I would articulate certain thoughts. Uh, and take ownership uh, of of what I would of what I was saying. So it was that kind of ethical transformation that occurred as a result of reading uh, Mill. And I never never forgot that. Um, and that that kept coming back to me um, throughout my academic career. Uh, in fact, uh, let me mention uh, an incident that happened at Queens that would exemplify this in a way. One of the things that uh, Mill is uh, very famous for is an argument for why there should be no censorship, and that uh, that under the right circumstances uh, we should we should be willing to listen to different points of view, uh, even those that may sound outrageous to us, because maybe there's an element of truth to what they're saying, or maybe if it's all wrong, it's important to remind ourselves why those positions are uh, are incorrect. To put it and kind of Mill's language, uh, to make our beliefs a kind of living faith rather than a dead dogma. So I, so I thought I had understood all this. Um, I thought that I was a very privileged person, that I, had, that I was being paid, literally paid, to spend my time um, learning and sharing my views with, uh, uh, with, with other uh, people. And I thought, gee, this is the greatest thing in the world. I get to pursue the truth uh, and to share it. Um, and I have to show due respect for the different interpretations that other people uh, have. And, this, uh, and that this not only broadens my own horizon, but at the same time, even if I don't end up changing my mind, at least I have a deeper understanding of my own position because now I've tested it against the views of other, of other people. So that's sort of a background. Uh, back in the late 60s, early 70s, when I first got to Queens, now, I should mention the late 60s, because I think what's going on in the culture now is very much a replay of some of the things that occurred then. And there were student rebellions and uh, all kinds of problems on campus. And on one occasion, uh, one student group had invited a particularly uh, obnoxious speaker uh, to come to uh, to campus, as students like to do. And that, that didn't bother me. As a matter of fact, I planned to go and uh, attend because I wanted to. Uh, here and then also, you know, raise a few questions of my own, assuming I was allowed to uh, uh, to uh, ask a question from the audience. <laughs> and because when I arrived, just as the speaker was about to begin, there was a student demonstration by students who were opposed to what the speaker had to say, and they literally disrupted the meeting to the point where we simply couldn't go on. So it effectively blocked the speaker from uh, delivering, uh, in, in this case, a male his position. I then went with a few of the sponsors, even though I did not share their enthusiasm with the speaker. Uh, we went to a dean 
and said, would you please ask the security people to come in? Because uh, there are people in the audience who want to hear what the speaker has to say and to engage in some kind of polite discourse uh, with him. And the dean then said to me, I cannot um, do anything about the people who are disrupting the meeting because that would interfere with their right of free speech. Right. And I was stunned by that remark because, no, you don't seem to understand. OK, if if, if you give this kind of power to uh, to people who object, you're actually preventing speech from going on. You're not protecting anybody's rights at all. And I, I couldn't at the time distinguish my mind. Did he really believe what he said? Right. Or did he say this because people have these uh, uh, diplomatic uh, expressions that they mention in occasion on occasion to kind of cover up uh, what is otherwise indefensible? So I thought, well, there's really something very wrong with the society that has so misunderstood uh, what Mills is, is, to- is talking about. Uh, so, so I had in mind then to uh, to do more work on Mill, and I did over the years. Uh, turned out that he was in many ways a very interesting uh, person, uh, had gotten into different fields. And I mean, the 19th century, he knew everybody uh, who was worth knowing uh, in Britain at, uh, at the time, and he became a kind of model um, of, uh, of the professional intellectual who was a sort of conscience of his society uh, at the time. Uh, and was very, very important in many, re- in many respects in helping to, uh, to change his own society, uh, hopefully in the right direction. And as I, as I progressed, I discovered that there were more and more people who had misread Mill's work. And for somehow, some variety of reasons, he became a kind of whipping boy, uh, that people who had some thing they wanted to object to all thought they had discovered this, uh, in Mill. And so I then, built a kind of mini career out of simply pointing out that they hadn't read the text. Uh, and I would go to meetings and people would say things. And I would say, but, you know, I say, I must, I must have a different edition of the book you're talking about. And I would quote a passage and saying, you know, what you're saying that he doesn't say, he doesn't, you're saying you're attributing something to him that he specifically rejects. Okay. Or you can't take a statement that take a statement that he made in, um, I don't know, uh, 1825, and then com- take another statement that he makes in 1845 and say, ah, see, right? No, they're not the same thing. 20 years later, uh, the statement might mean something completely different if you don't know the context. So, so way with too much of the, of the academic uh, paraphernalia, uh, I decided that, that he was somebody who was worth trying to, um, uh, to, to clarify, uh, especially since he had been so seriously misrepresented. But uh, the other deep attraction uh, for, for Bill, for me, had to do with his, with his, his uh, uh, he wrote an autobiography. So this was an interesting challenge for me as an author, writing a biography of someone who had already written an autobiography. So you got to compare what, what he thinks is going on in his life with what you think is going on uh, in his life. But part of, part of his his story is that he he became an autonomous person. He, he learned to accept responsibility for his views, even though they they disagreed at one point with those of his father, whom he deeply respected and loved, but could not bring himself uh, in a face to face confrontation um, 
to to disagree with his with his father. There's a whole other theme about the relationship between fathers and sons uh, in the 19th century. In fact, there's even a famous book uh, by Hinkley on father. Yeah, so, the, so that's a whole big issue of it uh, of its own. So I I then realized that that his autobiography was a kind of story of how he became his own person, right? And it was beautifully written and worth worth reading for that reason alone. So I tried in the in the biography itself to not only talk about events in his life, but also how what he was saying at one point differed so much from what he was saying at another point, how his own mind had grown. Uh, and this is a, uh, related to Jubig's book, because Jubig's first book points, has a sort of collection of uh, statements that Mill made when he was a young radical. Uh, none of which he believed when he got older. And so you have to uh, say, yes, if I take all the stuff I wrote 50 years ago and read it now, I'd probably be embarrassed by it. But uh, maybe 50 years from now, if I'm still around, I'll be embarrassed by what I'm writing now. That's OK. Uh, the, uh, that, that change, again, it wasn't just a change in what he was saying, like, well, I used to say this. Now he's saying this. It had something to do with what was going on uh, in his life. So his, his life was in part a reflection. Uh, it was a great intellectual adventure uh, in, a, in a way. And one could come to understand that your own life, that my life, uh, anybody familiar with Mill, you could see your life as a great intellectual uh, adventure. Uh, that maybe this is a very positive way of thinking about yourself. To go over how you have evolved, uh, how the evolution can sometimes be a deeper understanding of what you had originally understood, when and how you changed your mind, what events in life caused you to look at the world differently, uh, which people in your life had some kind of uh, major or magical transformation uh, of the way in which you uh, in, engage the, uh, the world. And this would be true for everybody, not just the highly articulate intellectuals or public policy uh, Figure. So if I were looking for a justification for uh, education, continuing education, I hate to put it in such terms, um, that life is a matter is, is one long journey of learning. Uh, and when you think of it uh, that way, uh, then you then see yourself and what you've done in a very, very different light. Uh, you could you can be critical about it. Uh, you can you can but critical might also mean um, you can say, look, I, how, I was courageous on this particular occasion. I did the right thing, <laughs> right? And on this other occasion, I did the right thing. And I'm ashamed of myself for, for not having uh, done that. So I can make judgments about myself in, uh, in retrospect uh, and measure the distance I've traveled from, uh, from then until, until then. So it makes, makes your own life a kind of adventure. Uh, in uh, in a way, and are and articulating this to you, to yourself, or even sharing it with uh, with other people. Uh, I, one of the reasons I mention this is that there are uh, famous writers. I'm not going to mention names who write as if they never change their mind about anything. You know, they oh, I've always maintained this position. Now, of course, I'm very happy to say 
to 10 or 15 occasions in my life where when I had the right view, all right? But I'm not going to talk about the 57 occasions. <laughs> How can I believe such stupid stuff? <laughs> right. uh, but I think it's important to, uh, to, to do that, to, uh, to allow, uh, for me very often students, but, but for others, to see learning as a kind of, uh, as a kind of adventure. And it's part of the mat- maturation process of what it means to, uh, you know, to, be, a, to be a human being. Mm-hmm. So it, it had that deeper meaning for me. And then, of course, the, uh, the other thing he was concerned with, uh, and I think it's relevant to the contemporary world, is that he, along with another, other major figures in the 19th century, I think, for example, Alexis de Tocqueville, with whom he was very friendly, and uh, he wrote reviews of both Tocqueville's books, that we have a democratic society, and a democratic society has certain built-in dangers, right? And uh, it will only work if there's a certain culture there. So to put this maybe a little more uh, theoretical terms, too often we are focused on institutions like economic institutions, political institutions, legal institutions, et cetera. And we forget that it's not the structure of the institution that's important, but it's the culture behind those institutions that makes a big difference. So he understood that uh, a free, if you wanted a free society, right, uh, where there is open discussion, criticism, uh, you're going to also, you're going to need certain kinds of people to make this work. And you would need an educational system that fostered certain intellectual virtues. Right? And that seems to me that, um, again, projecting into the, uh, into the present, that we are living during a time where th- those, those intellectual virtues have all, uh, have all disappeared. Um, and there's, there's no longer uh, any kind of respect for people in, in the act of, of discourse. Uh, that that people will use words simply as weapons. They will say anything. They don't care what what the real meaning is of what they say. It just becomes something with which you can hit uh, other people, hurt them, um, or rationalize uh, your own misbehavior. Uh, instead of understanding that when you take a stand and when you say certain things, it should really be related to what you're going to do. That there's there's an obligation to act a certain way if you're going to speak a certain way, and if you're not prepared to act that way, you shouldn't you shouldn't speak in those terms. And uh, uh, so, I, I would, in fact, throughout my teaching career, um, raise the I would raise the following question: Are we really able to live in a free society? Can a free society actually sustain itself where there's mutual respect? Uh, and you recognize the importance of letting people um, lead their own kinds of lives because because that's a great challenge. And my and I would sometimes counterpoint uh, Mill with Nietzsche. Perhaps this is a little unfair to Nietzsche, but let me use it. Let me use it anyway. And I would say, well, you know, on the Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I tend to agree with Mill. I think you know we are up to to maintaining a free society and a culture. On Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, especially after I finish teaching, I get discouraged and say, no, we're just not up to the test, et cetera. Maybe, maybe it's hopeless. We're never going to be able to, to sustain 
free society with ordinary people. And then on Sunday, I just don't want to think about it because I need to rest for the, for the rest of the week. So I've wrestled with this, uh, with this issue um, uh, most, of, most of my life. And there are, there are times when I despair of uh, our ability to sustain this kind of society. But every once in a while, uh, I remind myself, this is the kind of, this, a free society is one I want, want to live in. So I'm prepared to do whatever I can in a very small way, whatever it is. Uh, I want to bear witness to it. I want to advocate it. I want to accept responsibility for doing what I can to, uh, to maintain that, even in the face um, of, of people who don't understand it, who despise it, uh, and, and who are really out, out to, uh, to destroy it. And I'm even, even sympathetic and respectful to people who want to impose their own sort of uh, uh, rigid system and as a response to somebody else's uh, rigid system. So I can imagine, uh, and these are kinds of people who've made criticisms of Mill, who would say, look, yeah, Mill's a great guy. He's very nice, but we just, but but that's, that's not how people are. That the only way you can maintain civilization is if there are a few people in charge who make sure that everybody toes the line. And then I would say, but look, but that's what the other side is saying. You know, everybody wants to be their own little group that's going to force everybody to toe the line and only reflect that one point of view. Uh, can't we really have us? Uh, can't we really aim for something else or for a free society? And when, when we have it, it's so beautiful and it's so wonderful uh, that uh, it, it just reminds me of why, why, that, why we have to defend it or those of us who think it's important have to defend it and to advocate it um, uh, and to try to articulate it as best we can. Sometimes just putting it into, into personal terms is a, a good way of, uh, of stating. So again, the, Bill's autobiography, is you could, this is a way of his saying, look, this is how I became a free and responsible person and and, and, and made myself. Right? And I would want to say to students, um, don't you don't have to do what I did or do it the way I did, but I want you to think of education as a way in which you find your own voice and accept responsibility for the for yourself and the kind of world you're you're trying to uh, uh, to to create. And I, I hope that at least on some occasions I've conveyed that uh, as a teacher and as and as an author. Well, uh, prior to the beginning of the show, Nick. Um, I had mentioned to you that I had taken a course with you at Queens College uh, way back when on the subject of critical thinking and logical fallacies, all based on a book that you had written called The Art of Deception, which I had uh, taken with me over the years in terms of not only seeing how others were intellectually dishonest in making their uh positions known and arguing certain things, but also as a kind of self-rigor to the extent that I am rigorous. Uh, is, is, this, is what I'm saying right now me BSing myself in, in some uh, form or fashion? Does my argument actually have any kind of uh, logic to it, or is it just a... Uh, a, an appeal or a confluence of emotions that makes me like my argument. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so, so mm-hmm. I would say, you know, even prior to these books that we mentioned of yours at the top of the show, 
uh, the art of deception as a as a way to look at um, uh, logic and critical thinking uh, was just for me a uh, an almost seminal book, uh, actually a seminal book in in my uh, in my growth and my my self rigor. And having said that, um, you know we we were talking a little bit about, uh, or I was talking to myself a little bit about the articles that you were um, f- so focused on in the past few years about the left, about their influence on education. And, um, and it's really, uh, you, you had started at least, uh, recognizing, uh, some of the, uh, the developments that we're seeing come full blown today. A number of years ago, even as you said, almost thirty years ago at Queens College in micro in uh, microcosm, um, mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. one article that you wrote called "Why the Left Is Intolerant," and you make so many good points. But I, mm-hmm. I did want to read this one paragraph, if I may, and and ask you to expand on it a little bit because uh, you really put things into relief and into focus um, in a way that, for me, clarifies a, a number of things. And what you wrote is, hence, the social sciences, which have colonized all other disciplines, including the arts, sciences, school of communication, law schools, and even schools of business, have produced a faculty that overwhelmingly supports government that is ever more powerful. This is what intellectuals tell themselves makes them the most important people in society. It is their raison d'etre. Since education is now understood to be a form of technology, education is indistinguishable from indoctrination. Universities and colleges may advertise to parents that a college degree increases lifetime income, but that is not the major mission of present higher education. Its mission is social reform. Yes. And uh, you told us just prior to the show that you are recently retired. And I wonder if you might share your experience of this movement towards social reform and mm-hmm. this politiz- politicization of uh, education as, as you've come to witness it. Right. Uh, let me add a little bit of, of, of background. In the 1970s, um, I began working with Sidney Hook. And he started uh, several organizations. Uh, one of the things we discovered in the 1970s is how many people were being forced out of the academic world, were being denied tenure, being denied the opportunity to publish what they wanted to, to publish uh, simply because they didn't agree uh, with, the dom- with the dominant view of the, in the university uh, at that time. So uh, this, this has been going on for uh, for quite some time. I'll just give you one example. Uh, I was once asked to help a younger uh, colleague uh, with his dissertation. He was uh, uh, interested in writing a book critical of affirmative action. And of course, I had already written a book critical of affirmative action. And they said, well, maybe you could give him some hints uh, so he, uh, that would help him with his dissertation. And so I sat down and talked to him, very bright, uh, bright young man. And, I, and after a while, I said, you know, uh, the, the best advice I can give you is don't write on that topic because your committee has already decided that your position is unacceptable. And was, <laughs> there is no way you can reformulate 
your position uh, that they will not see through. So he said, well, what do I do then? I said, then write on some other subject that uh, where you don't have to sort of show your political views. I said, why don't you, you know, write a book on some aspect of Adam Smith, which of course he ended up doing. He wrote a very, very good dissertation and book on Adam Smith and got, and got his PhD. But that's sort of what had become um, the, the way things operated. All of the university presses, most of the journals, et cetera. Uh, it's not just that they have an editorial policy. I mean, I can understand that if, you, if you're going to publish something, you have some sort of editorial uh, position uh, that, that you want taken seriously, but that they literally will not publish and will block anything uh, if, if it disagrees with, with the dominant view. So many of the, um, uh, while the radicals were a little bit uh, ineffective, at making immediate changes in the 60s and 70s, they all entered the professoriate. So from the 80s on, these were people who were now the majority of the faculty. And not only were they the majority of the faculty, they ended up becoming the presidents of universities, et cetera. So the whole, the, the whole uh, 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 higher education uh, structure then was, was, in a sense, warped into this particular uh, direction, namely that it should be involved in social reform. Now, there's nothing wrong with trying to uh, reform society. I think if you think uh, if you think that there's a problem and that you can contribute towards its solution, by all means, uh, do it. In fact, I admire people who uh, who want to do that. But there should be at least one place in the universe where, instead of our forcing our views. Uh, and restructuring everything from that point of view, where there could be this open-ended conversation where we could always ask the question, are we really doing the right thing, right? Are we we on the right track? Are we just BSing ourselves, okay? Are we giving giving some insights into how things work or are we merely insisting upon looking at the world a certain way because we're personally gonna benefit from, from doing that, uh, and and I and that's all gone now. Uh, the, the latest iteration—I mean, there are lots of iterations—but the latest one was: well, we used to be we used to be concerned with with different points of view, but now now we want to persuade people. But what does it mean to say that you want to persuade people? It means that now everybody has to agree, because if they don't agree, you've not succeeded in persuading them. And so uh, uh, among the many things that you'll see, uh, people will be given sensitivity training. Uh, now, sensitivity training uh, you was on the surface looks like, well, you, know, you should be careful about what you say. You don't want to deliberately offend uh, uh, other people. It used to be called good manners. <laughs> you, know, you should be careful about, about uh, the jokes you make. You don't want to take them at someone else's expense unless they sort of share the same general uh, uh, framework of uh, of humor, um, and I'm sorry, I can understand. Yeah, okay, fine. We want to be sensitive to other people. When it gets to the point, though, what they really mean now is that you have to advocate certain views because if you don't advocate those views, you're doing something very harmful. So one example, just a simple example. I had a very good student a few years ago who wanted to write on climate change and its connection with um, uh, the, the social responsibility of uh, corporations. And I said, that's great. And what are, you, what are you planning to read? And they said, well, I wanted to read Al Gore's book. And I said, okay, fine. That's, that's a nice collection of, uh, of views and 
But I think you also have to read some positions that are different from Gore's position. And here's a list. I gave her a short list of half a dozen articles and books. And I indicated in each case what the position was. So you get this kind of balanced view. And she said, oh, no, I can't do that. I said, I said why not? I said, these, you can go to the library. These books are available. They're not expensive or hard to find. I'm thinking she's, she, she's going to have trouble. No, no, no. She said, you might cause me to change my mind if I do that. And I said, well, what's wrong with changing your mind about a position? It was like, I want to believe, I want to believe this. And I only want to be, I only want that belief reinforced has become a kind of like a religious belief of some uh, of, of some kind. Now, if I, I, of course, like, like you gentlemen are smiling. I smiled at, uh, at the time. Uh, I didn't realize that, that we were now headed into a world where you're not ever allowed to say anything if, it's, if people disagree with it. That, I mean, that's how it begins. But in the end, what it really means is we, there's a certain leftist orientation to solving social problems. And if you don't agree with that, if you don't, then then you are detracting from the institution. So let me let me put it uh, another way. Um, there are people who are very famous and important, have power, prestige, et cetera. Uh, one thinks, for example, of people like Bill Gates, uh, uh, CEOs of major corporations, uh, important political uh, figures, people who are followed uh, on, in, you know, whose tweets are read by hundreds of thousands of other people. There are such there are such people, but um, then there are, then there are those of us um, who teach, right, and who are very who are delighted to have the opportunity. I still can't believe I get paid for doing this. Okay, I can go out and read stuff, right? I can share my views. Um, I can help other people with this. I, I think this is such a wonderful uh, kind of life. Uh, now, naturally, I would like to win the lottery. I have no objection to winning the lottery. Uh, I have no objection to, be, to being interviewed uh, by nice people uh, like you. I, I hope, hopefully, I won't take myself too seriously. Seriously, yes, but not too seriously. Um, but there are people who are not satisfied uh, with this. They don't, they don't realize, um, in a way, the glory and the, and the, and the value of that they've been given this role, they want to feel that they're more important, uh, that somehow they are they are transforming the world, right? And that that's more important to them than um, you know than whether they're advocating the correct position. They want to be taken. They want to be taken seriously. And so they turn the educational institution not in, not into a place where we learn and debate, et cetera, and and develop long term. Uh, intellectual virtues, but really a place where we uh, end, end up just telling people what they ought, ought to think and then go out and to change, change the world. So if, if instead of just being a faculty member, um, instead of just being a teacher, instead of realizing how important a role that is, how demanding a role that is, uh, you, you want the limelight. Maybe when you go to bed at night, you want to say, oh, I'm, I'm important because I help to change. I help to change the world. Um, then those are the kinds of people who would who would find the appeal of the university as a sort of social transformation agency to be the most important uh, the most important thing in their life. They they want they want to believe that what they're doing is earth shattering. Uh, in a in a way, 
they're not satisfied with a more modest conception uh, of their role in, uh, in life. Nor do they realize how difficult it is to take this role seriously. I mean, I'm always obsessed with the view that whatever I write next week, I'm going to come across an article or a book and I'm going to say, my God, if I had only known that, uh, I, I would either have not said what I said, or I would have said it in a very different way. And uh, I, I just want to get it right. I want to, want to make sure I haven't missed, missed anything. So it's a, you might say, okay, well, it's a neurotic obsession. Uh, I would rather say, no, it's a, it's a commitment to, it's a commitment to finding the truth and to articulating it as best we can. I can't, I can't think of anything that's more important than that. I don't want to say that other things are, are unimportant. Um, and I just wish that more faculty people understood that and the influence that they can have on, um, on students. Uh, and again, they, it, it, it's not that you want to, it would be very nice to have graduate students who continue in the vein in which you, in which you publish. But uh, if I get a letter from a student, as I often do, and I'm sure other teachers get, have the same experience, someone who said, I had you for this course 25 years ago. And I'm thinking, my God, I don't even remember you. I don't remember your name. I don't remember the goddamn course, et cetera. <laughs> but but you, you transformed my life, okay? I'm thinking, wow. <laughs> I don't get... I only get hate mail about the art of deception. I never get hate mail about my teaching. Uh, and I'm thinking, that is great uh, that, that I have this, this kind of, of influence on, uh, on people. And that's much more important than uh, you know, being popular, uh, you know, getting my 15 minutes of fame, uh, et cetera. And the same thing goes for, for writing. Um, there's a kind of learning that takes place when you read, or read what somebody else has to say, I learn something. Uh, if I discuss my views with other, or, or somebody else's views, that's a different kind of learning. When I write, that is a different kind of learning as well. And so when I write, I no longer write. First of all, I don't, I don't need to write for tenure uh, or promotions that I got all that out of the way uh, years ago. And you certainly don't write academic books in order in order to make money. Forget about it. Uh, it it's, it's, it's great as a tax deductor, but you're never going to make a fortune from, from royalties writing the kinds, kinds of books that most, most academics write. But it is a, an adventure. Um, it's, it's a way in which, in some sense, I can analogize my life to what it must feel like if you're, say, a great painter and you finish the work and you realize that you've created something uh, that's very, very special. And you look back and say, I actually did that. That's, that's, that's amazing. That the experience of writing it and completing it and what you learn from it is as important as the attention that you can get from, uh, you know, if it turns out that your, your work is popular uh, or rewarding in some of the you know, conventional senses of the, uh, of the term. So there's so much more involved uh, in the in the academic life, um, and, and and you don't and it's not that whatever view I happen to be advocating at a time that's important. I would like to believe that I've transformed people's lives, uh, that I've made them a better person in some way. Uh, that means much more to me than than what uh, uh, they'll put up a statue to me, right? And then two hundred years from now, somebody. <laughs> 
urinate on the statue, right? And they'll take down the statue and so come on, it's just it's just concrete or whatever. Uh, uh, it's it that's not the kind of memorial that I that I would be uh, that I would be interested in. It's a, it's a question of whether I positively transform uh, somebody else's life. Just as uh, I look back in my own um, career, I think of the people who uh, who did that for me. Let me cite two examples of, of it. Um, I ended up majoring in philosophy as an undergraduate. And so, so how did that come about? Well, given my socioeconomic background, my parents wanted me to become a doctor because that's what immigrant parents want. Uh, that way you have prestige, you have income, you're useful to society. They don't have to worry about you, et cetera. So I, and, you know, if you're, if you're good at schoolwork, you should be able to do this. So I go to college with that intention. You know, I'm probably going to become a medical doctor. And I get to the University of Pennsylvania and I have to meet some requirements. Uh, and uh, I don't know even what some of these subjects were. Uh, but my advisor says, here, you've got to take one of these. Uh, here's sociology. Take that. So I go over. This was before computers. So I go over to the sociology department and they say, no, you can't. Sorry, we can't take you. That class is already filled. I go back to my advisor. He says, well, take philosophy. That's open at that time. And since I was working as well as going to school, uh, fitting something into the time slot was important. Well, who was my first philosophy teacher? First philosophy teacher was William Fontaine. Uh, he was at the time the only African American teaching philosophy in the Ivy in the Ivy League school, right? And probably nobody would remember him for anything that he had written, uh, etc. But I love what this guy was doing in the classroom. And he gave me the opportunity. Uh, all the students had to make a presentation to the class. You had to explain something to the class that we that you were assigned to read, uh, point out strength and its weaknesses. And I got up and I did this. And when I finished, I said, my God, I really love doing this stuff. <laughs> How am I going to tell my parents that I want to spend the rest of my life teaching philosophy? They don't even know what philosophy is. I've never, I couldn't even explain what the subject better. But so I, I, had a, I had a teacher who just got me so excited about that. Or just as a follow-up, one, one semester I was taking a history of philosophy, starting with Plato, a history of sociology, starting with Plato, and a history of political theory, starting with Plato. And so I'm getting three different views of Plato. So I go to my philosophy advisor, who was in fact an expert, when Plato actually published the book, and I'm saying, you know, I'm a little bit confused here because they're all talking about three different things. And he laughed. And I said, why is he laughing and making fun of me? I'm, I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm struggling. Why doesn't somebody tell me what Plato actually means? He said, you're lucky that you're getting three different interpretations of this because you're going to come up with your own, and that'll be the most meaningful one for you. But to jump ahead, back, back for me, but ahead from this, the order in which I'm telling the story, I met Sidney Hook, and for the first time in my life, got to know uh, a faculty member really well, not just as a, as a student or a junior colleague. I had never met anyone in my life who was at the same time so incredibly brilliant and, and yet so courageous, always taking uh, unpopular stands at, at great cost to himself, that he believed so much in what he was fighting for that, that uh, he was willing to put up with all kinds of scorn and criticism. And he was able to uh, 
uh, share his own strength with others. If you were associated with him, suddenly you felt yourself to, to be more, more emboldened. Just to mention a couple of things about, about Sidney. Uh, he was the first person to introduce the study of Marx into the U.S. classroom, which he did, I think, in 1932. And by 1939, he had become America's most famous anti-Marxist. So he knew Marxism both from the inside and uh, and as a critique uh, as a critique of it. He wasn't ashamed to change uh, to change his position uh, uh, on, on on this. Uh, and, and so, but again, it wasn't just that he was brilliant. I've met lots of very, very bright people. Uh, it was that, that it was the courage and the better, better word than courage. It was the integrity that he had that I realized was much more important than, um, than, than how articulate uh, he could be. Because I've met lots of very articulate people um, who lack integrity. Uh, their, their skills don't mean anything. Uh, to, they don't respect their own skills, or they will sell their skills out to, uh, to to other to other people. They're much more concerned to get the approval uh, of others ra- rather than rather than their uh, respect. You know, in a way, I guess I, I, it would be very nice that people agree with me. Um, that's always a good experience. It's much more pleasant than somebody saying, "How could you be so stupid?" Uh, or even thinking that. Um, but I would rather have somebody recognize that I'm making a serious effort to grapple with a with a problem uh, than than whether they necessarily like my solution to the problem or, or where I where I come out with it. So there are these kinds of intellectual virtues, um, and what I've learned in, in connection with this, just not to wander too far, is that the intellectual virtues don't mean anything unless you have certain moral virtues that it's not just how smart you are, but are you willing to push yourself, to push the argument to the extreme? How, or do you really want to stop and only at the point where you say something and you get everybody's approval? Everybody likes that. And so you stop at that point. Or do you say, no, I want to push ahead. I really want to find out if this position is a, is a truly defensible position. And I'm going to do it even if later I end up embarrassing myself and saying, you know what, I was wrong. I was wrong. It just that was just not the right place to uh, uh, to be. So I'm more committed. Uh, one wants to be more committed to the search for the truth than simply the search for for the clever thing to say uh, that gets you remem- that gets you remembered. The soundbite that everybody thinks is so is so important. That that ideal of education, it's gone. I mean, it, it just doesn't exist. Uh, if I were to offer uh, a larger explanation of what's going on, right there, there, uh, the let's put it this way: the entire moral purpose of higher education has been lost. It's just been lost, right? And it's been replaced uh, by something very simple, namely social reform. Now, there, if you look back at the history of higher education, you know, there are books written on this. Um, there have always been several different models. There's been the, the notion, uh, sometimes largely in uh, schools with a religious orientation, that we're here to transform lives. Then there's the view that we're getting government money to help solve some problems. All right, it's good to want to try to solve problem. Or, uh, uh, or, or three, the view that we're just, we're just doing research. 
regardless of where of where the research is going. So people get involved in uh, in petty, trivial, trivial things. I'm just thinking of it. I participated in in such a conference uh, yesterday. Uh, and after I delivered my paper, I had to listen to the papers. And I'm saying to myself, don't these people better to do with their time than to be concerned with with trivia? So I know that going in the trivia direction, uh, and then there's the social reform uh, direction, but this transforming lives direction, right? Yeah. And what I would, would argue, this is difficult, I think, for a lot of people to accept, right? Students need to be educated for a longer period of time because life is just more complicated now. They need to know more. On the other hand, longer education is not higher education. Higher education requires two things. It requires a level of ability that, quite honestly, I don't think the majority of the population has. And that's a difficult thing to say in a democratic culture. Right? And it also requires a kind of moral attitude. That uh, that it's very difficult to to promote or even to to uh, to recognize, and so I think that that the the thing that hurt the most is when higher education simply opened the doors to everybody, and rather than admit that that was a mistake, because you've now built up this huge institution, and there are hundreds of thousands of people who are earning a living out of this, to suddenly say that you know what this this is largely a big mistake. We have to close all these places now and start all over. Um, and a lot of you are not going to have are not going to have these cushy teaching jobs where you don't really do anything and you get paid for it. A popular uh, position, so they'll want to want to argue that uh, we have to keep these institutions going. And so one of the ways in which you can do that is to claim that you're solving uh, a social problem of some kind. Half the time they know that that's not true. Right. It really is uh, a kind of big lie. Um, and the other half of the time, um, when people point out that this is just bullshit, uh, they have to silence those who say this is wrong. And what you're doing is, in, is really a, a bad thing. And you should be ashamed of yourself for doing that. I mean, if, if, you, if we start allowing those conversations, then we're, we're going to be exposing people uh, in a way that they don't like. And so one way to avoid being exposed uh, as either a phony uh, or somebody doing something negative is to just silence the set. So there are lots of factors um, that have contributed to, uh, to, to this uh, silencing of the set. The, des the desire for glory way beyond what, uh, what people should, should expect. Uh, the desire for certain perks and privileges that would, uh, that would, that would disappear. Um, uh, the not wanting to look at yourself in the morning and say, get up in the morning, suppose you're shaving. Uh, it looks like you guys don't shave anymore, but I still shave in the morning. All right. So I get up and I, put, and I say, I might say to myself, Tell me, no, did I really get that right? All right. I hope I haven't misled anybody uh, by that. I worry about that sometimes. And so I, I don't have to worry about that. Now. I can just tell myself, I look in the mirror, oh, I'm, I'm transforming. The world and making this a better a better place. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm a revolutionary, and it's so much more exciting to be a revolutionary than it is than it is to be just a regular guy who uh, who who loves what he does. That uh, it, it's uh, I, I so I, I think the academic world is attracting 
really the wrong kinds of people in a way. That ethos, I saw it at the very beginning of my career, that there were still people like Sidney Hook who were uh, conveying the, the ethos of, of what it meant to be an academic. And, and, and then maybe 10 or 20 years later, by the 1980s, that was all gone. Uh, I w- was once serving on somebody's dissertation committee. I'm not going to name the school or, any, or anything, but there were five of us. Um, the person who was supervising the dissertation, two members of the same department, myself as the outside person from a different field, and a fifth person who was a visitor from the UK. And the young man whose dissertation was being discussed came in, made his presentation. We were all then invited to ask questions. Well, it became obvious after about five minutes, that's how obvious it was, that this young man did not know what he was talking about. It wasn't that he had a different or esoteric view, et cetera. He really did not know what he was talking about. He had he was ill-prepared. Um, and uh, it looked for a while as if he was, we were just not going to approve his dissertation. Well, then we took a break and the uh, uh, chairperson who was the supervisor of the decision came in and said to us, uh, we were all men, gentlemen, um, it's really important that we get this guy through because if not, we're going to lose the economic support for our entire graduate program, all right? And we won't be able to teach graduate students. Okay, to my to my everlasting shame, I I I didn't approve the dissertation. I should have disapproved of it. What I did um, was just take a neutral a neutral stance, and so did the other other visitor. We should have protested vigorously, and we didn't, because in a sense we were going along to get along, uh, just as just as the other people uh, were, and that's what it, that's what has happened to higher education, uh, in a sense, it had become a thoroughly corrupt uh, enterprise. Um, Maybe it's the case that everything is corrupt. Maybe every institution is corrupt. Uh, Maybe the the military is corrupt. Everything everything is corrupt, et cetera. So why should I be surprised that the the academic world uh, is corrupt? But you would think that that the academic world should also be a place where people say it's wrong for us to be doing this. I know some somewhere or other there has to be an institution in society that says stop. Well, there's get away with that. I'm sorry if I maybe it may be that um, that both perspectives are, are right in a sense that there's always going to be a base level of a type or, or a base level of corruption in every in- institution, and then. But there will be also exacerbations and increases and noticeable changes where even even above that baseline of corruption. And when you were when you're te- when you were telling that story and and before then, it reminded me of what you had said just a bit earlier on democracy and Mill's take on democracy and how there are certain um, there are certain advantages to democracy, but there are also certain things that have to go along with it, like the a, a political uh, a certain culture that can support democracy. Because without that culture, then democracy has some inherent weaknesses that that lead to certain things. And one of them is, um, well, I'll list a few that I think are inherent weaknesses. And one is just the the elevation of mediocrity. So 
without without a culture. Um, well, I was reading I was reading recently um, Richard Legutko's book on freedom, the cunning of freedom, and he's got a a chapter on uh, the aristocrat in in the positive freedom section, and he's talking about the ideal of of an aristocracy. In, not in the sense of a hereditary aristocracy, but in the sense mm-hmm. of a a class of people, a group of people that maybe are partially self-selected and partially selected by the society itself to be exemplars, to be um, like paragons of, of virtue, or in the sense, in the case of higher education, to embody those ideals and values of higher education. But when you have, mm-hmm. when you lose that culture... And when you have a an over focus on total equality, that brings down the that aristocratic um, ideal down to the to the level of mediocrity, and then you then you get um, like interest groups and and just the like I guess the, whatever is going through a, a culture or a society at the time that then replaces those norms with something else. So then, and then there's no standards by which to judge what's going on. So in the example of the, of the PhD candidate there, you, you, there's the, the institutional pressures to keep your funding are stronger than the intellectual values that would say, no, that, that, that is a lesser, well, that it shouldn't be that we shouldn't be under that pressure in the first place, but the, these values are actually more important. We can't, we can't, uh, sully our our aristocratic you know sense of uh, nobility to to lower ourselves to that level you don't find that anymore you you just say you just find people going along with the crowd and that makes the the institutions even weaker because then they get populated by people that that are um that don't belong and it's not just mm-hmm. i think a lot of people might might think that well, they might they'll, they'll probably be offended by that to say that someone might not belong well it's not just that it's it's not just from a position of, oh, well, I'm better than you and you sh- don't belong here. Although there is an element of truth to that because some people are more qualified. It's also the element of when you're put in a position where where you feel out of your depth, where you are out of your depth and where you can't perform the the actual tasks, like where you don't know what you're talking about, that is actually a very stressful situation to be under because you have to pretend. You have to pretend for the rest of your life to be something that that not, that you simply aren't and that you can't live up to. So it creates just a, a chaos of, um, uh, well, a situation that is full of, uh, full of areas where things can go wrong and do go wrong. And then it gets worse and worse and worse because there's no standard to lift things back up to where they were. Make sense? You said it, you said it beautifully. I, I think it's a wonderful way. Yes, makes makes perfectly good sense uh, to uh, to me that uh, we that is part of the problem with the democratic culture. Um, I let me say the same thing in a slightly slightly different 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 way uh, because I think you're pointing to something that's quite important here. There are people who who are better than others at certain things, but it's not just the cleverness, right? It's not just the skill set. It's also the deeper commitment to the moral virtues that that are necessary to sustain those intellectual virtues at a very at a very high level. But it's very difficult in a democratic society for people to uh, to admit that uh, we we may be equal in one respect. It doesn't make us equal in in other uh, res- respects. 
and, and so we have to learn to, to recognize those shortcomings in ourselves. Well, uh, I can imagine somebody coming back at me and saying the following. Well, look, Professor Capaldi, okay, you grew up in poverty, right? And the good thing you had free public education. It's a good thing that people, other people paid for your college education, et cetera, or you would never have been able to enjoy this wonderful life that you and lifestyle that you've created uh, for yourself. So and I would say, yes, I, I'm deeply appreciative um, of all of those things. But um, if someone had said to me, you know, we, we think you could be a great basketball player and we're going to devote all these uh, uh, resources to making you a better player, I would say, please save your money, right? I'm hopeless when it comes to certain sports, right? There's no amount of training you can give me that's going to make me into, into, into a better player. So I, uh, some of us are just better than others at one thing uh, or, or, or another. And, that, and, and this belief, yes, I understand we want to give people as many opportunities as possible to succeed. That's one of the great things about our, about our culture. But we also have to recognize that some people are just not up to the, to the task. You have to be self-critical enough to recognize what, what can I do? What I'm, what am I not capable of doing? The other, let's, I want to talk about the other part that we sometimes forget. And let me describe this as the uh, uh, Judeo-Christian insight into the, into the human, into the human condition. And that is that we, we are not born good and perfect and education can make us that way. That's just not a true picture of who we are. Human beings have self-destructive impulses, right? What used to be referred to as sin in a way, right? I can look into myself and quite honestly uh, see all of the capacities that human beings have for doing terrible things to themselves um, and, and to others. And so you have to fight against that, uh, and that's a lifelong struggle, not to let the destructive impulses uh, over somehow overcome the, the more the more positive ones. We don't want to recognize that about people. We we want to say no. Everything can be perfect. Uh, uh, we we can turn people into paragons of uh, of uh, of virtue, uh, and there's some way of doing that. No, we can't do that. We, there's only so much we can do. But in the end. The what kind of a person you are will depend on the steps that you want to take. So, uh, as a teacher, I can show you how I've done it, but I cannot do it for you. I can merely demonstrate how other people have done it, how I have done it, I, I hope how I have done it, and offer you the invitation to uh, to do that for for yourself. But I cannot actually make you into something. Because you have free will, you have the capacity to do, to do self-destructive things. That is, again is another dimension we don't we don't want to uh, we don't want to accept. Um, and then there are the people who want to believe they can fix everything, and when they can't fix everything, they redefine what it means to fix things. So here here's the perfect example of that. Um, sure, it would be great if everybody had a better education. So we're going to give everybody free college education. Okay. What about the students who, who don't bother to read the work, who don't understand what they're reading, who don't turn their papers in uh, on time, who don't participate in the give and take of, uh, uh, of discussion, et cetera? 
Um, do we accept them or not? Now, if we say, no, look, you know, you're not ready for this. You're not up to it. Uh, thank you. It didn't work out. You can go home now and do something else. Well, if we do that, our retention rate goes down. So here's the new buzzword, retention. We're not retaining students, right? So what do we do to make sure that we can retain the customers? We lower the standards and keep getting them lower and lower so that after a while, everybody can be can be retained. So the institution corrupts itself because they say, look, we, now we've graduated people. Well, you know, we used to be able to graduate people in three or four years. Now it may take six or eight years. Surely there's a difference between a person who can do something in three years and somebody who needs eight years to accomplish the, uh, the same goal. And then you wonder if, in fact, they have. They haven't really accomplished the same goal. They've simply accumulated the requisite number of credits. What they got out be, of those credits. It should be uh, called constipation, be, not retention. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, constipation. Oh, that's great. Right. Or even, I mean, who, who decides that an education is so many credits, right, uh, uh, et, et, et cetera, uh, rather than, look, we went here and, uh, and, we, and we worked with so-and-so. Um, and if you want to know anything about me, well, why don't you write to so-and-so and ask them, you know, what kind of a person I, I am. Not, not what grade they gave me, but, um, uh, but you know, uh, you know what, what am I? What is it like to be with, uh, to be with me, to work with me? To, to assign something to me, whether or not it gets done, uh, it gets done on time. Uh, all, of that, uh, all of that gets lost because we now become a victim of the, of the numbers game. Look at how many students we've graduated as opposed to look at what our students have done uh, with, the, with the time that they, that they spend here. So again, uh, uh, th this is true of the whole notion about, about social reform. There are some things that we can't change or we can't bring about simply because we, we want to. And so what we end up doing is redefining what success means, right? So uh, if we have too many people who are committing crimes and the jails are full, we will solve that problem by simply emptying the jails and saying, see that? We are, we're a very advanced society now. We have very few incarcerations. Well, yes, you have very few incarceration, but that's not, you haven't solved a problem. You've redefined what the problem is. We now have so many people with PhDs, so that shows we have a very high intellectual level. You've got to be kidding. Um, if, you, if you look at how many people who are uh, making millions of dollars a year, as I'm sure you guys are not, right, as uh, in, in the TV business, and you look up their backgrounds and say, so-and-so attended this university, not that they graduated from it, right? And they may have majored in communications. God only knows what, it, what that means to major in communications, okay? And they're now being paid $14 million a year to appear on television every night um, to confuse what it means to report a fact and what it means to give an opinion about, uh, about the fact. They don't know the distinction between an editorial um, and, a, and a straight news report. Uh, and and where they think they're doing something good by lying to the public because it's a noble lie. Maybe if enough people believe the lie, the world, the world will be a better, a better place. I think we've, we've heard that a number of times throughout, uh, throughout history, the business about the noble, the noble lie.
And it's very scary that, that these kinds of people get to define what the, what the public discourse is or who's allowed to participate in the public discourse. In the late 1960s and 70s, we had these original problems on campus, all of which are coming back to haunt us now. What I remember is a student, and the university was closed down, Queens was closed down. I remember several adult students coming to me and saying, we would like to offer our home as a place where the class could meet. And my response to that was great. I'll come to your house, wherever it is, and everybody else in the class who can make it there, that would be great. I'm not going to hold it against anybody if they couldn't make it because they may have had other family obligations. But if I'm going to be there. If you people want to learn, I'm happy to do it. Um, and the same way, uh, as another example of that, uh, there's a lot of criticism going on now uh, of the military uh, as an institution. Um, I had the, uh, the, uh, the privilege and the honor to teach at West Point for a year in the late 1990s. I don't know what's happened in the meantime, but I met some really extraordinary people. I, had, I was giving a course in epistemology at West Point, and I mentioned my favorite author uh, at, at, at the time. I was, was reading Michael Oakeshott, and I just mentioned him in passing. Well, at the, at the end of the day, three of the cadets came to me and said, uh, we would like to do a special seminar on this Oakeshott guy you're talking about. And I said to them, well, how's that possible? I mean, you, you know, your entire day is taken up. With, with one responsibility after another. And they say, yes, but we have a free half hour between 8 p.m. and 8.30 at night. And we wondered if you could fit that in. What, what would you say? You say, of course, I'll, I'll show up at 8 o'clock if you're really that serious. So I, I was, I, so we talked a little bit about how institutions have been corrupted. So I think it's important also to recognize that in every institution, there are always people who, who you meet and say, thank God. Uh, that there are younger people out there who really believe in the importance uh, of, of, of this stuff. Um, and I have an obligation to do what I can to, to help them uh, in any way that I can. It reminds me of, of why I started uh, in, this, in this business. So, why we, so we must couple our condemnation of corrupt institution with the recognition that there are always people out there who are prepared to do the right thing. Um, and we have to identify them, become their allies, uh, help them to the extent that we, uh, that, that we, that we can. And I think that was, um, well, that was very, very well spoken, uh, as has been pretty much everything you've said up until this point. Um, and it's, uh, with, with the rise of the the mediocrity within the institutions, which then you know goes on to give rise within, uh, well, specifically academia, and then later on, the the mediocrity uh, disseminates out into the rest of society, and so then we have what we have today, where it's just a a big uh, cesspool of mediocrity run a me- by a mediocracy. A mediocracy. Thank you. That's the that's the right word for it. Um, that is very. It's scary, as you were saying before, because these are, it's, uh, what's the word, a Dunning-Kruger. The Dunning-Kruger effect just gone gone rampant, where the, the people who don't understand what they're really, uh, what they really should be doing, rather, uh, think they know 
what it is, not only what they're doing, but why they're doing it and also what the outcome will be. So they, and it goes back to one of the stories that you were talking about, uh, with the woman, uh, going to write her, uh, going to write her book who didn't want to change her mind because no, this is the opinion that I have to have. And, and it's, and it's like that just everywhere. And so everyone has these set beliefs that have to be adhered to and there, there's no, uh, courage or curiosity, uh, about them. Um, because that's just that that is what is deemed as good. These are the things that are deemed as good. And there's this whole um I mean what you what you've written about in in some of your articles uh does a really good job in in detailing what it is and why and how it all kind of came to be the the inevitability of the rise of the social sciences, quote unquote, uh to to uh to giving rise to yes the 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 media the mediocre people like these are these are kind of inevitable ends to this type of science um by virtue of the fact that it's not really a science mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so would you would you be able to to explain like what you mean by uh that and also so what was it science social technology Yes. Okay. Thank you. That. Uh, thank you for that. For that question. Uh, the uh, uh, the technological project is an expression I used when science changed its its conception of what it was roughly at the time of the Renaissance. Up until the time of the Renaissance, science was simply a matter of uh, observing and recording what what you have seen. But from the Renaissance on, roughly speaking, science was concerned with transforming the world, not just conforming to the to the world. So if I if I had a theory about the secret structure uh, of how things work, I could manipulate that structure uh, and make things come out the way we we the way we wanted them to come out. So if we discover, for example, that there are microbes that cause you to have a certain illness, um, microbes can't be seen with the naked eye but we can indirectly discover them. And then we can try to find substances that we can inject into the human body that will destroy the microbes and your symptoms will just go back to being uh, a healthy person. So, so, So physical science was able to get at the initially hidden structure. And by manipulating the initially hidden structure, the molecules, the things like, like that, we were able to create the kind of world we wanted, so we had the physical technology. We know we know what makes your blood pressure go up and down. We know how the bones should be, so we know how to to, to reset them in case they're in case they're broken. So uh, this changed the world. We now instead of thinking of ourselves as victims, now we can think of ourselves as people who control the world, not simply be controlled by it. All right. So now the next step is someone will say, well. What about the social world? We have all kinds of problems in the social world. Maybe if we studied the social world scientifically, we could find out what the hidden structure is and then manipulate that. And we would have a social technology that will enable us to solve the social problems. Okay, so uh, that that was the idea of the social sciences. Or to to use another expression um, that I'd like to employ, the Enlightenment Project was the notion that by developing a scientific account of society, we could not only explain and predict, we could also control. Right? That's, that, was, that was the goal. 
And so the social sciences were uh, to be the uh, disciplines that were going to discover the hidden structure to the social world that we could then manipulate and, and get the kind of result that we wanted. The problem is there is no hidden structure to the social world, right? When, when the physical scientists talk about molecules and atoms and things of that sort, they are actually able to show at some point through sophisticated equipment that such things are really there, even though we can't see them with the naked eye. But there is no hidden structure to the social world. The social world is exactly what it appears to be. If you want to know why people do what they do, the most important thing is to get inside their heads and see what they think they're doing, how, how they articulate to themselves what, 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 uh, what's going on. So you, you can't pretend to discover a hidden structure when there isn't one to, to begin with. And suppose somebody says, oh, yes, but Christopher I believe there is a hidden structure. Well, I, I would think after 300 years of looking for the hidden structure, you should be able to give me an example of there isn't anything, right? The physical sciences can show real progress. There's nothing in social science that corresponds. There are no laws, et cetera. Um, imagine how silly it is for economists to want to say, we can actually predict what's going, what's going to happen. We can control interest rates and we can just make the economy do whatever we, whatever we want to do. We can't do that. At, at best, we can, we can in, re in retrospect, explain how we screwed up. But the idea that you can't, just not possible. All right, but, but now we've introduced the dangerous factor. We've introduced the notion of the hidden structure that some people believe is there. Well, you're going to get alternative accounts of the hidden structure. So somebody will explain uh, a social problem by saying it's caused by A, or somebody will say, no, it's caused by, caused by B. In neither case can any of these people actually demonstrate that those things are, are there. This is all just talk. So what do we do now when we have disagreements in the social sciences? In the physical sciences, you can conduct experiments to find out whether or not something actually works. The social sciences, you can't do that. So they play the same game. I am now going to offer a hidden structure account of why you are too stupid to agree with my hidden structure account. So in other words, which is a double hidden structure thing. So the reason that you disagree with me is that you are racist or that you're bourgeois or this, uh, uh, et cetera. So once you do that, now, you don't have to pay any attention to anybody who disagrees with you. So the search for social technology ends up leading to a world in which civil discourse is no longer possible. It's also it also doesn't make any sense. Let me give the following example. Have either of you guys ever lived in a city with a subway underground transportation? I used to give yep. this example all the time. We were all familiar with the subway. All right, so here's a social problem. The, um, the, uh, there are a group of young, young people who are assaulting older people in the underground, in the, uh, in the subway system and stealing their money. It's that older people are vulnerable, the younger people are much stronger, faster, et cetera. So this is a social problem. We want to solve the social problem. So we, we will take a Skinnerian view. Well, uh, maybe we'll use the social technology. We will recondition the young people so that they will no longer be disrespectful 
of older people, and that and that and then the problem will go away. Okay. How about this? If you can recondition the young people not to assault the old people, why can't you just recondition the old people so that they don't mind being assaulted by younger people? Uh, if human beings are so pliable that you can apply this technology from the outside, on what basis would you apply the technology one way rather than another? After all, you only believe in this that the technology should work in this way because you've been conditioned to believe it that way. In other words, you've lost any frame of reference in terms of which you could decide that one is better than another. But it, 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 so the, I would like to say there are lots of people in this who do social studies who, who say important and interesting things, but there are no people who discover social laws that are anywhere comparable to the kinds of things that go on in the physical sciences and that are therefore able to, uh, to create a social technology. Let me give another practical example. Suppose I am a uh, Nobel Prize winning economist um, and uh, I make an announcement. It's, it's, this is the wrong time, but imagine, imagine it's earlier in the day. And I say, today's Friday, it's noontime. And at three o'clock, the banks are going to close. And I really believe that there is no liquidity in the system. I think that when the banks close today at three o'clock, I'm predicting that they will not open on Monday because we're going to be in for uh, a very serious uh, economic uh, downturn right now. What will you do if you believe my prediction about Monday? I presume that you will immediately withdraw all of your money from your account. You'll call your mother or your friends, et cetera, and say, mom, get your money out of the bank as soon as possible. So at the end of the day, we can raise the question, did I predict the collapse of the banking system or did I cause the collapse of the banking system by making a prediction that other people took seriously? There are endless ways of pointing out that there's, there is no such thing as a, as a social technology. We would like to believe that there, that there is, but, uh, uh, and even the people who are very famous economists say the dumbest things uh, uh, at, uh, at at times. They may be lucky and guess right once, and then they're and then they're and then they're wrong on a subsequent uh, uh, occasion. Because what we what the the technology people are doing itself becomes a factor in the outcome. It's, so it's it's not just that you're making a prediction, et cetera. You're also influencing how the event is going to, uh, to, to turn out. So you, uh, when a physicist makes a statement about a molecule, the molecules, I can assure you, are not listening, right? They're not paying attention to the physicists. They're not going, they're not going to deliberately want to confound the, uh, uh, the physicists or, or go along with it to make them feel better. Uh, you do this with people, but there's just no analogy to it uh, whatsoever. So it's this belief in a social technology. It's been around for a long time. It, on, on the face of it, it's just false, and it doesn't work, and, you, and it's not even imaginable how it would work. If you could turn people into anything you want, why would you turn them one way rather than, uh, rather than, another, and then another way? What would be the basis on which you would make that decision? Isn't your decision to do it one way rather than another itself a result of prior conditioning? How do you get to the point where there is no prior conditioning. Uh, well, that would, that would imply that people are free. Now, it's also the case that we all believe that it's only our neighbor who is determined 
outside forces. The rest of us are all completely rational. I only make decisions on the basis of reason, whereas I'm sure you make it because you're you're influenced by one prejudice or or another. Well, how did I miraculously escape this process by which I can arise above every external set of circumstances? Right, so the, the the issues are are, are endless. Um, it's it, it's just dishonest from beginning to end. Um, and I so I I think there should be some maybe some government agency where you have to produce a working model of your social technology before you're able to actually put it into practice. Because you be able to patent your social, you have to show that it uh, that it that it works, right? And if it and if it doesn't work. Then you shouldn't be allowed to uh, to pr- to proceed uh, with it. Right? But people believe there's some magic formula. I'm going to make your kid into a combination of Albert Einstein and uh, Leonardo da Vinci, uh, or something like that. Uh, we, we can we can change. We're going to live forever. Uh, we're never we're never going to be disappointed. We're never going to have we're never going to have pain, etc. If only you accept our critical theory indoctrination, we will all live in utopia. Right, exactly. Right, yeah. But it's it's just all BS. And and I think maybe the best weapon is to say, but but it's bullshit. (laughs) I mean, I hate to use such expression, but sometimes you just just have to come out and say it. It's just bullshit, right? And we we have to stop pretending that, that that's the case. Right? There is no such thing as institutional uh, racism. Right? There may have been something like racism in the past. Uh, I have no doubt about that. But the idea that all these social problems are the result of, of, of some mysterious force called institutional racism, I mean, the expression doesn't mean anything. It, mean, mean, it you know, just doesn't mean anything at all. Uh, here's a statistic that might be more meaningful. In 1934, the percentage of Children born out of wedlock was roughly 12% for every group, whether you were white, black, Hispanic, or however they were classifying people. That was the national average, uh, 12%. In the 1960s, uh, Senator Moynihan from New York pointed out that the illegitimacy rate had risen in some communities to 25% and said, we may be in for a serious social problem here. Right. If you look at the African-American community today, the illegitimacy rate uh, is now something like 75 percent. Three quarters of the population is born to parents out of out of wedlock. Now, don't tell me about Angelina Jolie and other people who have gazillion dollars. They're able to have big families and they don't have to be married to their parties. I know that that they don't have to go through ceremony, be a responsible parent, et cetera. But look at what look at the world that these people are actually growing up in, um, where there's no authority figure, there's no example of people who um, have created a good life for themselves uh, legitimately. Um, maybe that's the source of the of the problem. But rather than accept responsibility for for that, it's much easier to blame somebody else for the problem than to say, you know what, maybe we're part of the problem. Rather than other people are not uh, are not part of the part of the problem. Well, maybe we're maybe we're the problem. But it would be it's very difficult for people to to make that judgment about uh, about themselves. Uh, 
So, I mean, those are, uh, that's how I would respond to some of these problems. I, would, I wouldn't try to define them out of existence, say, well, you shouldn't say that children are illegitimate, uh, et cetera. That, you know, that's a negative expression. Well, well, okay, fine, make up some other expression. I don't care which expression you make up. But what the statistics show is that if you were born into that kind of family, uh, the chances are nine out of 10 that you're going to end up dead or in jail. I mean, that's what the real statistics show, right? Uh, so uh, to want to ignore that kind of fact, and, and to blame somebody else uh, or, or to blame some mysterious entity like the system, et cetera, it's, it's just silly and it's, and it's dishonest. And it's, it's, time, it's time to say that to, to people. Enough is enough. It's bullshit enough. And that's what I'm going to call it. Right now, if you want to have a more polite discussion with me, well, then you know, come to the class and here are the rules of polite conversation. And here, and here's what you have to read. We don't, we don't want you to come in here and just talk off the top of your head. You have to show that you've read, you've read something uh, and that you've read some opposing points of view. And you have to be willing to share this with other members of the, uh, of the, of the discussion. Um, so I th- so I, I, my plan right now, um, you, you may laugh when I, when I say this, uh, I've been trying to wonder what I'm going to do to combat all this nonsense besides just writing an occasional article when I get really pissed off enough about one thing or another. Uh, I would like to, to start reading groups where we just get together as a group of adults, choose something we're going to read and sit around as a group and with some certain few polite rules, discuss it. And if we all got into the habit of discussing it in these, in these reading groups, and being respectful, maybe in some way that would rejuvenate the culture or change the culture or move it into a more positive uh, direction. And even if there are people who, when it's our conversations are open to everybody, if you don't want to join our conversation, that's okay. That shouldn't prevent the rest of us from recognizing that there are people out there who want to have these conversations. So you Mm -hmm. gentlemen, and I, any, anybody can do this. We have Zoom and all these other, other programs. Um, uh, my wife and I are now going to set up a new institution, uh, which will encourage people to form these reading groups and to, and to talk about things and to just get into the habit of developing these intellectual and, uh, and moral virtues so that the, the people who merely want to shout out their opinions or impose them uh, Will, will will be the people who won't fit in, into it. And the rest of us um, will revive that these kinds of discussions that that, sh- that should take place, right? And, and they don't have to be necessarily on very esoteric books that are on, where you have to have read 400 books before you can discuss the 401st book. There are lots of simple things, articles and books out there that you can that you can just read and skillful discussion leaders can can get people to to become engaged on. And in fact, sometimes uh, we're in the process of looking for books or articles, not because they're the best thing on the subject, but because they're the book or article that will instigate the, the discussion, that they will lead people to ask questions. So we want, that's the sort of thing we're looking for. So I might produce some very esoteric thing for specialized audience that has 
the right background. Like, you know, I like to do that too. But there's a level at which I just want to talk to my nice, intelligent neighbor uh, and get them to think about, about things and share what I know and see how they feel uh, and maybe get some insight um, into what they're thinking. Because if I don't know what my neighbor's thinking, then maybe there's something wrong with me that I've become insensitive to uh, to certain uh, events. And if somebody says something that is patently false, I'm going to say it's bullshit. That's just not right. Maybe that right there, these uh, reading groups, is part of the answer to addressing the uh, pathology of the soul that you uh, so described in, in one of your articles, Nick, that um, for, for those who are unwilling or incapable of uh, the spirit of inquiry, of genuine curiosity, of an opening, of, of an openness to, to different uh, perspectives, they could go their way, but but for those who are open, for those who do want to revivify um, their knowledge, uh, their appreciation of other perspectives, uh, and the spirit of, of real education, a reading group, as you described it, sounds like a wonderful idea to me. Thank you. And um, Thank you. All, of, all of us here have participated in reading groups before and still do, and uh, it could be very... Um, just a wonderful experience. Right. And instead of letting COVID simply uh, make prisoners of us all, we can be thankful for a technology that will allow people in different cities, different time zones, even to have, to have these convers to have these conversations with, e with each other. And, uh, and probably no proprietary right here. We want, it's the activity that's important. Uh, go for it. Establish your own, your own network. Share with me what's worked in your network, and I will share with you what's worked in uh, in my network. And perhaps um, people like yourselves can be a kind of conduit through which the different reading groups can um, uh, can get to know each other or, uh, or or get some publicity that they that they exist and that they're open to. Uh, and I think one of the, the other thing is it would be very reassuring to some people. You'll say something. And they'll say, yes, I think that too. And I was afraid to say it because nobody nobody was saying it. Like, the emperor has no clothes. He just doesn't. Say that the emperor has no, no, no clothes. Or, or, or that maybe, you know, maybe the emperor do, does have clothes and we're just not seeing it right. But, but it's important that for all kinds of reasons that this sort of communication go on. It's the one way of subverting the total control of society that the big tech companies now now operate. I mean, they really can't control us if we have these these reading groups. We can, in fact, use their own their own technology to expose what they're doing. That could that be some of the stuff we could read about how they manipulate uh, what's 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 going what's going on. Okay, it is, uh, any technology can can become a prison, but it can also become your your get out of jail card. All right, if you learn how to use it in in, uh, in your own in your own favor, I'm, I still take the view that the the technology is more uh, a freedom enhancing thing than it is an enslaving thing. If we just learn how to use it to our advantage, that sounds great. Yeah, we'd love to be involved somehow in in a project like that. So we'll be yeah. we'll be in touch about that. But I think uh, yes. I think we're gonna, we're kind of wrapping up. Uh, 
probably near the end of our conversation. Now, Ilan is shaking his head because I'm going to ask him to relate a story from, uh, from his time in college, uh, taking your class. And uh, I, just, I just really want to hear it from him. So <laughs> Harrison just wants to embarrass me a little bit. Uh, well, I, I, I shared a, a story, uh, Nick, where, um, with the guys here where uh, I had a final exam uh, with you. And I had, I had just come from two other final exams back to back. So yours was my third. And um, as, I, as I walked into the class, everybody was already seated and like 15 minutes into <laughs> taking your exam. And uh, as I came to your desk, you looked up at me and said, how can you be late? to your final exam, which was a perfectly reasonable question. Like what kind of irresponsible, you know, joker is this guy coming in? And I answered quite rhetorically. I said, I'm late because I'm late. And, uh, and, and took the, the test and, uh, and that was that. But um, it, was, it, was, uh, it was my defense for not being able to say, hey, I just came from uh, two other back-to-back -back classes had to use the bathroom, needed a moment to breathe. <laughs> <laughs> and, and when you spoke earlier, you know, with, with such uh, humility and, and self-awareness about making mistakes and, and um, reflecting upon certain things, I thought, oh, you know, maybe I can share this with, with my old professor <laughs> of, <laughs> of 30 years ago, how I, you know, would, would not, would rather not have had that exchange with you, but, <laughs> but there it is. Oh, no, thank you. I, I, I appreciate your, your, your telling me that. In fact, I congratulate you for being still awake and able to take a third exam in a row like that. If I, can I go back and change your grade at this point? <laughs> you, were, you were already too generous with, with the grades you gave me, Nick, I, I assure you. Oh, thank you. Really thank you very much. Uh, and I'm, I'm serious, guys, about wanting to keep in touch about the... Um, uh, the, the, the reading groups. I, I really think this is uh, a, a way we can liberate ourselves. Yeah, sounds good to me. Yeah, it's an excellent idea, Nick, and I, we will make every effort to be in touch with you and, and to uh, pursue this in a way that, that's workable uh, for everyone. And with that, I, I want to thank you again for joining us today. You said so many um, insightful and uh, and um, important things that are born of your knowledge and experience and your own personal conviction that, uh, you know, I, I don't think anyone could but help to appreciate your, your work and your continued commitment to growth and understanding of, of just where we are today um, on a few uh, crucial levels. So we appreciate you, as, as they say in the South. <laughs> it's it's been, it's been my pleasure and i'm i'm grateful for the opportunity that you've given me to uh, to talk to your audience and i look forward to uh more productive interaction with you guys great we Thank do you. too yes all right thanks nick take care right talk later you too all right bye bye bye